Great. Well, welcome back. Um, as we get closer and closer to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, if you have your Bibles, open them, please, to Matthew chapter 26. And today we're going to take a look at two events and two individuals and their different responses to trying circumstances. We're going to take a look first at Peter and a moment of weakness in his life, and then we're going to take a look at Judas Iscariot. So we're going to start today at Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And then again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then we'll come back and take a closer look at this section of Matthew. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit, that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. We've stated on previous occasions that the gospel writers didn't necessarily record the events in a strict chronological order, that from time to time they organized their material in order to make theological points. And I think we have a little bit of here in Matthew. Um, Matthew is giving us a juxtaposition uh, between Jesus and Peter. And as we're going to see in a little while, not only between Jesus and Peter, but again between Peter and Judas Iscariot. Now, this first juxtaposition between Jesus and Peter has to do with what happens when there is pressure brought to bear, when there is peer pressure, pressure from the culture, pressure, pressure from those who would be uh, enemies of the gospel. In the case of Jesus, uh, we've already seen that the Lord had left that upper room. He had passed through the Kidron Valley. He'd gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, and while he was there praying with his disciples, the temple guards came and arrested him. We took a look at this last week. Jesus was hauled off uh, to stand before Annas, the high priest, who was the hereditary high priest. After he was interrogated by Annas, he was taken off to Caiaphas, this is going to be a Jewish trial, but it's going to be a trial in three parts. His first interrogation before Annas, his second interrogation before Caiaphas, who was, according to the Romans, the official high priest, and then Jesus' trial and interrogation before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. Well, what we have here in the section that we're looking at today is another interrogation, but it's not the interrogation of Jesus, it's the interrogation of Peter. And I say it's a juxtaposition because when Jesus is interrogated, you'll recall that he was asked to give testimony as to his identity. Um, in fact, he was forced to give this under the most solemn oath then available in realities of the Lord's trial before Caiaphas and the Jewish religious leaders was the fact that the high priest actually intervened in these events. There were a number of illegalities, the very fact that Jesus was arrested with no charge brought against him, the fact that he was arrested at night, the fact that the trial took place at night, the fact that there were no eyewitnesses, and the fact that the high priest intervened in the proceedings, a dignified bystander who only cast the deciding vote if there was a split. But that was not the case here. Um, Caiaphas realized that the situation was slipping beyond his control, beyond his grasp. By this point, he had already decided that Jesus had to die, and so he intervened. 
And he commanded Jesus under this most solemn of oaths to declare whether or not he was the divine Messiah, not merely a son of God, not merely the Messiah in the sense of a political or military Messiah, but if he was in fact a divine Messiah, a son of God in the sense of one who was claiming divinity. And we notice that Jesus answered that solemn charge honestly. And it was a serious situation because that was, in the eyes of the Jewish religious leaders, blasphemy. And because of it, Jesus would ultimately be condemned to death by them. That was the opportunity that they had been looking for. So Jesus was interrogated. He was asked to give a testimony. He gave an honest testimony. Well, now we come to Peter. And Peter likewise is interrogated interrogated multiple times, just as Jesus was interrogated multiple times. And as I said, this is Matthew's um, attempt to juxtapose these two individuals, or Jesus and Peter. And what happens here is that Peter is challenged. He is charged um, with an association with Jesus. But unlike Jesus, he caves under the pressure. He capitulates. And as a consequence of that, he lies. So that's what Matthew is doing here. He is juxtaposing these two individuals, Jesus, who is called to give testimony and gives an honest testimony, and as a consequence, forfeits his life, and Peter, who is required to give an honest testimony, but capitulates to the pressure and ultimately lies in order to save his own skin. So that's the contrast that Matthew presents us with today as we look at this section of Matthew's gospel. Now, one of the things I think we need to notice about this is that this is an unvarnished account. We know it's a true account, if for no other reason than the picture that we have of Peter, who was one of the founding fathers of the Christian faith. Remember, he was the leader of the apostolic band. The picture that we have here of Peter in Matthew chapter 26, is anything but a complimentary one. It really is a very discouraging picture. Now, bear in mind, at the time that Matthew was writing this account, Peter was still alive. You know, sometimes we are willing to say something about an individual once they've passed from the scene, and they can no longer defend themselves. But it's an entirely different thing to paint a negative picture of somebody when they are still alive. And Peter, at this point, was, as I said, a leader of the apostolic band. He was one of the founding fathers of the Christian faith. He was the elder statesman of the Christian church. And yet the picture that we get here is a very unvarnished, unattractive picture of one of the great heroes. That's one of the reasons why we know it's true. And this is one of the things that I think is most compelling about the accounts of the Lord's death and resurrection. The picture that is painted of the disciples is anything but encouraging or impressive. The picture that we have of these men are of men who are weak and cowardly and vacillating, men who are so concerned for their own well-being, men who in the Lord's hour of need desert him and run away. You'll recall that the only people at the foot of the cross as Jesus was dying were women. It was not the disciples. It was not the 12. John was there, but with the exception of John, all the rest had run away. And even on the day of resurrection, when Mary Magdalene is sent back from the tomb into the city to find the disciples, where do we discover them? But hiding behind bolted and barred doors. So the picture that we get here in the gospel is a very realistic picture. It's the kind of picture that we would expect to find of men who were facing the circumstances that these men faced. Well, as I've already suggested, uh, Peter uh, is accosted. Uh, he has followed Jesus at a distance. All the rest of the disciples have abandoned the Lord. They've run away. But Peter apparently did follow Jesus at a distance uh, up to the priest's house, to the high priest's house, Caiaphas's house. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've been to the church of St. Peter of the Giligantu, that is St. Peter of the Cockcrow, and that is the location of Caiaphas's palace. You can actually see the first century stairs. They are still there, the very stairs that Jesus would have been led up to stand trial before the high priest. They are still 
there. They're cordoned off, but you can actually see the stairs that the Son of God actually walked up in order to stand trial before Caiaphas. So Peter is following Jesus at a distance, and we're told that when he went to the entrance, there was a servant girl, and she asked him if he was connected with Jesus, if he was one of his disciples, and we're told that Peter denied it. And then someone else came up to Peter and asked him if he was associated with Jesus, and again, he denied it. Another came up and, and, and insisted that he was, that they could tell because of his accent, and again, we're told that Peter denied it, at which point Jesus turned and looked at him, either from a distance or through an open window, we don't know, but Jesus looked at him, and we're told that Peter was cut to the quick. He went out, we're told, in verse 75, and he wept bitterly. Now, I think Peter is an important object lesson for us for a number of reasons. First of all, we have to acknowledge the fact that what Peter did was a very serious sin. Now, we might look at it and say it was a moment of weakness, and of course it was a moment of weakness, and we're going to talk about some things that are in Peter's defense in just a moment, but we need to acknowledge right from the beginning that what Peter did in denying Christ was very serious. Now keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 26 and turn back, if you will, to Matthew chapter 10. This is early on in this gospel, but Jesus speaks some very solemn words to his followers. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So that is serious business. The scripture says that if we believe in our hearts and we profess with our lips, we will be saved. In other words, there is a public profession that is required following Jesus is a personal matter, but it is by no means a private matter. The Lord's last words to his disciples were, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all men. So our faith is a public faith. We are called to share the faith, and Jesus makes it very clear. If we are ashamed of him, if we deny him publicly, then he will deny us. He will be ashamed of us as well. This is something, incidentally, that is reiterated by the Apostle Paul. I turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy for just a moment. 2 Timothy is Paul's last epistle. The great apostle is locked away in a prison, the Mamertine prison in Rome. His prison cell was an abandoned cistern. It was only about uh, 20 feet in diameter. It was a rat-infested place. It was a terrible place. And Paul knew that his life was coming to an end, and this is really his last will and testament. He's going to be passing the baton of leadership onto this young man, Timothy. And so these are his last words of advice. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is encouraging Timothy to be a young soldier, a good soldier. Let's just go ahead and read through the first 12 verses. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. And then he goes on to say this in verse 11, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Paul is telling Timothy that he needs to remain true as a good soldier to the end. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Because if he falls short at the end, he will be lost. 
Well, this is exactly what we find Peter doing here, denying the Lord, denying the Lord publicly, and denying the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. So we need to recognize this is a serious situation in Matthew chapter 26. Now, we have to say a couple of things in Peter's defense. This was, as we said, a moment of great weakness. It was a serious and grievous sin that he had committed. But nevertheless, we have to recognize a little bit of ourselves in Peter. In Peter's defense, we have to say, first of all, that he really did love the Lord. And he clearly had, previous to this, tried to defend the Lord. You'll recall that when Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem, when he decided that he needed to make that final journey to Jerusalem, where he was going to offer himself up as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, the other disciples tried to discourage him from doing so. They knew that there was trouble in Jerusalem. They knew the scribes and the Pharisees were plotting against the Lord. But interestingly enough, it was Peter and Thomas who said that they were willing to go to Jerusalem and, if necessary, to suffer and to die with Christ. And Peter appeared to make good on that. Because earlier in this same chapter, we're told that when the temple guards came to arrest Jesus, Peter drew his sword and struck out. John tells us he cut off a portion of the ear of the high priest servant, Malchus. Now, what that means is that Peter was trying to take on the entire company of the temple guards in order to defend Jesus. Now, in one sense, this is typical of Peter. Peter could have a moment of great courage and a moment of great weakness. We've already seen that in his life. But we have to say, in his defense, he really was loyal to the Lord. And as I've already suggested, the others deserted Jesus at this point. The others ran away. We're told that the temple guards grabbed hold of the tunic of one of the men, probably John, and John rested himself free and left his tunic behind, ran off into the night naked. So they all ran away, but we do notice that Peter did follow Jesus. Now, it's true, he followed Jesus at a distance, but the point is that he did follow Jesus. He alone of the disciples did not abandon the Lord at this point. And clearly, we can see that Peter did indeed love the Lord. He did love the Lord. It was a weak love, perhaps, but it was nevertheless a true love. And yet, there's no denying the fact that Peter did, in spite of all of this, in spite of his willingness to fight for Christ, in spite of his willingness to follow Christ at a distance, in spite of the fact that he loved the Lord, he nevertheless did fall. And the reason why Peter is an example for all of us is because, my friends, if Peter was capable of falling, you and I are certainly capable of falling. If Peter was capable of denying the Lord, you and I are certainly capable of denying the Lord. We have to ask ourselves, why did Peter fall? He knew who Jesus was. He'd been uh, a witness to all of the miracles. He'd already confessed the Lord up there in Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus had praised him for this. Jesus said, it is not by men that this has been revealed to you, but by my Father who is in heaven. You are Simon, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Why did Peter, this great and courageous man, fall? Well, if you look at the text closely, we can actually see that there were a number of events that led up to this moment in Peter's life. And these are very important lessons for you and for me. If Peter was capable of falling, as I said, you and I are capable of falling. And if these are the things that led ultimately to that fall, you and I need to take note of them in our own lives. The first thing is this, Peter had been warned. He had been warned that he was going to deny Christ. We saw that earlier in Matthew chapter 26. At the time of the Last Supper, Jesus told Peter that he was going to be, deny him three times. And it was Peter who insisted that that was not the case. 
He said, Lord, I will go with you to prison, even unto death. One reason, or one of the things that led ultimately to Peter's fall, was the fact that he failed to take seriously the Lord's warning. Well, that raises a question. Do we believe Christ's warning? Do we realize that we are weak, that we are cowardly, that we may have the best of intentions, but we may not have the strength or the wherewithal to carry them out? Look at what Jesus John chapter 15 is where we are. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is a portion of the Gospel of John, sometimes referred to as the farewell discourse, because it contains some of the last words spoken by Jesus prior to his departure. And one of the things that he says to his followers is this. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, apart from Christ, what are you and I capable of doing? A little bit? Jesus says very clear, we are capable of doing nothing. We have no strength in and of ourselves to help ourselves. And that is exactly what Peter said to, or Jesus said to Peter on the night of the Last Supper. He said, you have no power, Peter, in and of yourself to help yourself. Be aware. Be aware of your own weakness. And Peter, unfortunately, had not taken that seriously. Second problem for Peter was that Peter had a tendency to exalt himself above the other disciples. He had this tendency to look down on the others. And then at the Last Supper, as they were reclining there at the table, and Jesus said that one of them was going to betray him, you'll recall that it was Peter who turned to John and said, ask him who it is. Peter assumed that it was going to be one of the others. It was Peter who said, Lord, all the others may deny you, all the others may desert you, but you know that I, I will be loyal. So Peter had a tendency to look down on his fellow disciples, to think that he was somehow better than they were. Closely associated with this, of course, is the fact that Peter had an inflated opinion of himself. He'd forgotten those words in Proverbs that pride goes before the fall. So Peter had not taken seriously the Lord's warning. He had looked down on the other disciples. He had an inflated opinion of himself. Here's one of the really serious mistakes that Peter made. He failed to pray. When Jesus led his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the things that he asked them to do was to watch with him and to pray. And he no warned them that they needed to pray lest they fall into temptation. Now, what happened to those disciples, to Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane? Did they pray? No, we're told that over and over again, their eyes became heavy and they fell to sleep. And Jesus would come and he would wake them up and he would tell them that the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. Don't fall into temptation. Peter failed to pray. And here, I think, is the final thing that led to Peter's demise. Peter thought that he could hide in bad company. Ultimately, that's really what led to his denial. If Peter had run away with the other disciples up over the top of the Mount of Olives down to Bethany, he would never have been in this bad company. He would have never been surrounded by those people in the courtyard of the high priest. He would never have been accosted and accused And he never would have failed to acknowledge the Lord. So there were a number of things, I think, that ultimately led to Peter's fall. Peter didn't believe the Lord's warning. Peter looked down on the other disciples. He had an inflated opinion of himself. He failed to pray, and he thought that he would be safe in bad company. Let me tell you something. If you and I want to avoid falling into sin... We need to take note of the things that ultimately led to Peter's downfall. 
we need to realize that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments. We need to recognize that we need the fellowship of the Christian church. I'll be perfectly honest with you. One of the things that worries me about the need for the technology that we have right now during this COVID crisis, one of the things that worries me about Zoom classes, one of the things that worries me about live streaming services is that we can fall into the trap of believing that we really don't need the fellowship of the body of Christ. That is perfectly fine on Sunday mornings simply to watch the service as opposed to participate in the service. And yet the New Testament warns us that we are not to neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We need to recognize that human beings are social creatures. We need each other. Cats are solitary creatures. They don't need anybody. But human beings need one another. Now, sometimes human beings can be irritating. We all recognize that. But iron sharpens iron. And we need the fellowship of the body of Christ. Peter needed that connection with the other disciples. When he found himself alone, he thought that he would be safe if he could just hide in that bad company. And it ultimately led to his downfall. I just want to point something out to you. It's just a little bit of trivia, but I think it's rather somber. The last mention that we have of Peter in Matthew's gospel, not in the other gospels, but in Matthew's narrative, is in this section where we're told that he went out and he wept bitterly. This is the last time we are going to hear from Matthew about Peter. The rooster crows. Peter is denied the Lord three times, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. That's what happens when we find ourselves not being vigilant, not being careful, not being faithful in our prayers. We find ourselves in that moment where we find ourselves compromised, and we can fall into the same trap that Peter fell into. And the only thing it leads to is to bitterness and weeping. There's no denying the fact that Peter fell away. As I said, this was a very serious sin to deny the Lord three times and to do so publicly. But we do know, not from Matthew, but we do know from the other Gospels and from the book of Acts that while Peter fell away, he did not fall away permanently. There are a number of things to note here. First of all, we said that Peter went out and wept bitterly. This is the last mention again in Matthew of Peter. But those tears say something. They tell us that Peter not only acknowledged his sins, Peter was sorry for them. His tears are a sign of the fact that his heart had been broken. And David, in that great confession in Psalm 51, says, it is a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, that you will not despise. He said, if you desired burnt offerings, I would offer them. But the only offering that is acceptable to God is a broken and a contrite heart. If the tears of Peter show us anything at all, they show us that he had a broken heart. They show us that he really did love the Lord, and he was truly sorry for what he had done. The other reason why I think Peter fell away but did not fall away permanently is that Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus had been praying for him. Jesus had prophesied that Peter was going to deny him. But he also gave this word of encouragement to Peter. He said, but Peter, be encouraged because Satan has desired you. He wanted to sift you like wheat, but I have been praying for you. And when you are restored, so the Lord did prophesy the fall, but he also prophesied the restoration. He said, when you are restored, encourage your brothers. Well, Peter, of course, was restored. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to John chapter 21 for just a moment. And we have this wonderful picture 
by the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection in which the Lord appears to his disciples. And he appears to Peter. I want to go ahead and read through the section because it really is a powerful story. We're going to start um, John chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, that is the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and gone into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now you recall that three years earlier, they had gone out, they had toiled all night, and they had caught nothing. Remember that? And the next morning, Jesus arrived by the Sea of Galilee. He asked them if they'd caught anything. And they said, no, they'd been out all night, but it had been an unprofitable evening. And Jesus said, well, put your boats back out into the water and throw your nets on the other side. And Peter, of course, objected. He said, you know, we've been out all night. Uh, you could probably imagine Peter saying something like this. Look, I've been a fisherman my whole life. You're a carpenter. What do you know about fishing? But just to prove you wrong, just because you say so, I'm going to put the nets back out. And they put the boats back out into the water, threw the nets on the other side, and they had that extraordinary catch of fish. So great that the nets were tearing. The boat was in danger of sinking. And we're told that when they made it back to shore, Peter came and he threw himself at the Lord's feet. And he said, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Well, where we have a situation that is very similar. The disciples have been out all night long. They had caught nothing. Look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Jesus returns to those same words with which he had called them three years earlier. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple, verse 7, whom Jesus loved, John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. The light bulb suddenly went on. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. Here's a perfect picture of impetuous Peter. Most people, when they jump off a boat into the water, take off their clothes. Peter, without even thinking, does what? He puts his cloak on and dives into the water. The other disciple came with the boat, dragging the net full of fish, and they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it. They had caught nothing. Here is Jesus, who's already had the fish prepared. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Now look at verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? They're sitting around. They're talking. I'm sure they were talking about the resurrection, all of the exciting things, what the opportunities were for them now and for Jesus, that he had conquered sin and death. They're having this, this high and lofty conversation. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus suddenly turns to Peter and he asks this question, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. Now, this is the restoration of Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. I swear I do not know the man. Jesus asks him. There by the Sea of Galilee, three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? It has to be a threefold affirmation to undo the threefold denial. 
But there's actually something even deeper going, along, going on here in John chapter 21. If you actually look at the Greek text, one of the things that you will notice is that when Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? He uses two different terms. Now, I pointed out to you before, Greek is a very rich language. The Greek actually has four different words that when they're translated into English are all translated as our word love. Uh, one of those words is the word storge. It means a kind of homely affection, the kind of affection that a man has for his dog. There is another word, and that is eros, from which we get our term erotic. It means romantic love, physical attraction. It's something akin almost to lust. Interestingly enough, this is the kind of love we are most familiar with in our 21st century world. It is the only Greek term for love that is not found in the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? There is a third word for love, and that is philia, from which we get Philadelphia. It means brotherly love. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And then there is a fourth word for love, and that is the Greek word agape. It means a self-sacrificing, self-emptying love, a love that thinks not of one's own well-being, but the well-being of another. Interestingly enough, that is the word that is used in John 3.16 to describe God's love for the world. For God so loved, agape, the world, that he gave. Gave what? He gave the greatest gift he had. He gave the gift of his very own son. Well, what's interesting is that as Jesus is sitting here by the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21, having this conversation with his disciples, he suddenly interrupts the conversation and turns and focuses his attention on Peter alone. And in the presence of all the others, asks this question, Peter, do you love me more than these? It was as if Jesus was saying, Peter, I know you promised that you would love me that you would love me more than anyone else, that you would go with me to prison, even unto death. But we all know, Peter, you didn't do that. So let me ask you the question again. Do you really love me? And it's interesting. The word that Jesus uses there is agape. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me with that love which is willing to die? And how does Peter reply? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But when Peter says, I love you, he doesn't use the same word that Jesus used. He doesn't use the word agape. He uses the word phileo. In other words, Jesus says, do you love me with that self-sacrificing, self-emptying love? And Peter, who now recognizes his own weakness at this point, replies honestly, Lord, you know I love you, but I don't love you like that. The best I can offer is a brotherly kind of love. So the conversation goes on for a, a time, and then all of a sudden Jesus turns back to Peter, and he asks the question again, Peter, do you love me? And again, Jesus uses that high word, agape. And Peter replies, Lord, you know I love you, but Peter uses the word phileos. And here's what's interesting. The third time Jesus asks the question, he changes the word love. He doesn't ask Peter, do you love me with that agape, self-sacrificing, self-emptying love? He uses the word that Peter had been using, phileos. Do you love me like a brother? And Peter was grieved because what the Lord was doing was revealing his heart for all to see. He was reminding Peter that in and of his own strength, Peter was not even capable of loving him like a brother. And yet you'll notice that when Peter says, yes, Lord, you know, I love you like that, then Jesus says, now we begin. Now you can begin to feed moms because you realize you can't trust yourself you know you can't do this work in your own strength. You know that you are weak, you are cowardly, you are vacillating. But you know you can do all things through me. 
That was the message that Peter needed to learn. It was a painful lesson, but it's a lesson, my friends, that you and I need to learn as well. To help ourselves or to live this Christian life, that if we were in the same situation that Peter was in, we would have done precisely the same thing that Peter. It's a line, it's actually a series of lines, it's a quotation in Mere Christianity. Uh, it's my favorite quote from that book. It's a great book, and I know many of you are studying it with Brian right now. But my favorite quote in the entire book, here's what C.S. Lewis said. He was talking about Christian virtues. And here's what he says. He says, we may indeed be sure that perfect chastity, again, he's talking about virtues, and chastity being one of those virtues. He says, we may indeed be sure that perfect chastity, like perfect charity, will not be attained by any merely human efforts. You must ask for God's help. Even when you have done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help or less help than you need is being given. Have you ever had that experience where you're struggling with something? Sometimes we call it a besetting sin. There is, there's something in your life that you can't seem to overcome. And you ask the Lord for help. But it seems as though no help or less help than you need is being given. Let me see a show of hands if you've ever had that kind of an experience. What does Lewis says, say? He says, never mind. I love that. Never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness, pick yourself up, and try again. For very often, what God first helps us toward is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. For however important chastity or courage, or truthfulness, or any other virtue may be, this process trains us in the habits of the soul, which are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves, and it teaches us to depend on God. We learn, and this is the critical part for me, we learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments. And on the other, that we need not despair even in our worst. For our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. Now that's a picture of Peter's life, isn't it? That, that's a picture of exactly what happened to Peter. Peter had to be trained in a habit of the soul, which was even more important than the virtue itself, the virtue of courage. He had to come to the realization that he could not trust himself or rely on himself even in his best moments, but that even in his worst moments, the Lord three times and publicly when he said he would never do it, his sins could be forgiven. And that is why Peter fell. But unlike the man that we're going to take a look at next, Peter did not fall permanently. He had come to the realization that he was a man who was truly weak. Now, up to this point, as I said, Peter would sometimes pass the test and still flunk the course. He was so impetuous. We see this over and over again. Up there at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? All the disciples had an answer. But when the Lord got personally said, but who do you say that I am? It was Peter alone that said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus praised him and said, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. It was a great praise. But Peter, who had just passed the test, as I said, flunks the course a moment later. When the Lord goes on to explain what it means to be the Messiah, the Son of God, how he was going to Jerusalem to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, to be denied, and to be ultimately executed on a cross, it was Peter who said, God forbid, that must never happen to you. He pulls Jesus aside and he said, let me tell you how it's going to be. 
And Peter, who had just been praised as the rock upon which Christ would build his church, suddenly gets rebuked as Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan, for you have your mind fixed on earthly, not heavenly things. And then there's Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, where they see Jesus shining in resplendent glory. And they see Elijah representing the prophetic witness of the Old Testament. And they see Moses representing the legal tradition of the Old Testament. And they see the Lord there in that Shekinah glory, that majesty. His garments whiter than any fuller on earth could bleach them. And we're told that Peter said, let us build three booths. He wanted to somehow capture the glory as though you could capture the glory of God. And the text said he didn't know what he was saying. That's Peter, isn't it? Ready, fire, aim, Peter. And that's not a man that can be used by God, but the man who was broken, the man who had come to realize that he could not trust himself in his best moments, but in his worst moments, he need not despair because there was a fountain filled with blood. That was the Peter who would go out and change the world. And my friends, if we're going to change the world, we have to be that kind of man. We have to be that kind of woman. We need to see ourselves aright in the light of eternity. You know, the closer you get to the Lord and your walk with him, the more apparent your weakness, your sins, your frailties, your peccadillos, those things will become more apparent to you the closer you get to the Lord. Why? Because the more you will be exposed to the light. And all those darker regions, those shadowy areas of your light will be illuminated. Now, that can be a painful experience, and it was a painful experience for Peter We're told that when Jesus asked him that third time, do you love me? Do you even love me like a brother? We're told that Peter was grieved. But my friends, it was absolutely necessary to wound his spirit in order to save his soul. And the same is true for you and for me. Do you think you can trust the Lord in your own strength? You can't. You'll fall just as Peter fell. So don't make the mistakes that he made. Don't exalt yourself. Don't think that you can do it by yourself. You need the fellowship of other Christians, people who can encourage you. There is safety in numbers, but there is no safety in bad company. Bad company corrupts good morals. And above all, pray pray. Never cease to pray. This is why we are encouraged to pray without ceasing, because the temptations are all about us. Peter says, our enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we need to pray at all times, conscious of the fact that the Lord is praying for us. Well, Jesus had foretold Peter's denial, but he'd also promised Peter that he would be praying for him. He said, Peter, you will fall, but you will be restored. And when you are, encourage your brothers. And Peter did. Peter, from that moment on, followed the Lord Jesus Christ all the way to the end. Peter, who had denied the Lord three times, even to a little girl, in order to save his own skin, would ultimately die the death of a martyr. Tradition holds that he was crucified, just as his Lord was crucified, but he was crucified upside down. Because when they took him to the place of execution, he insisted that he was not worthy to die in the manner that his Lord had died. And so tradition holds that he was crucified head down. See, that's what the Lord can do. He can take cowards. He can take deniers. He can take the most villainous of people. And he can transform them into the greatest of saints. If you think about it, that's really what the Christian story is all about. He can take a man like David, 
who was guilty of adultery and murder and make him a man after his own heart. God can take a person like the Apostle Paul, the Heimlich Himmler of his day, going out and systematically dismantling the church, imprisoning men, women, and children, an enemy of the followers of the way, and turn him into a man who was willing to suffer all things for the sake of Christ. And he can take weak, cowardly Peters and transform them into leaders and rocks upon which he'll build his church. If the Lord can do that with Peter, he can do it with you. Remember this from Peter's life. You can never, never fall too far from God's grace. You can never fall too far from the reach of his saving embrace. We won't have class next week because it is Thanksgiving. When we come back the week following, we are going to go ahead and take a look at another person who fell. But unlike Peter, this man did fall permanently. And it's helpful to take a look at the difference between Peter and Judas. You know, we might think that Judas's sin was somehow greater than Peter's, but it really wasn't. I mean, yes, it is true. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But the Lord had said, we've already seen earlier in this Gospel of Matthew, that if anyone denies him publicly, he would deny them. And Peter did that. So what was the difference? Why was it that Peter was ultimately restored to fellowship and even to leadership? You know, that's one of the most extraordinary things, that, that Peter was not only restored to the fellowship, he didn't lose his salvation, but he didn't even lose his position among the apostles, and yet Judas Iscariot did. Jesus says it would have been better if he had never been born. What was the difference between Peter's fall and Judas's fall? Why was Peter's fall temporary? Judas's fall was permanent. Well, that's what we're going to take a look at next week. The difference between these two men and the hope of salvation that can be found in Christ alone. Okay, well then let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. And when we come back together again, uh, the next time we'll take a look at Matthew chapter 27, verses one through 10, the tragic end of Judas Iscariot, this man who had been with the Lord for three years, sat under the greatest teacher the world has ever known, witnessed signs and wonders and miracles, and yet nevertheless, ended his life in despair. He felt very much like Peter. He went out into the night and he wept bitterly, but his end was very different from the end of Peter. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace, your amazing grace, which can reach down into the depths of our despair, that can lift us up, when we are broken and frail. Grant us the grace to learn from Peter's example. Grant us the grace to realize that we cannot trust ourselves in our best moments, but that in our worst moments, we need not despair, for our failures can be forgiven. There is plentiful redemption in the blood that has been shed. So grant us the grace, Lord, to press on toward that upward call, which is ours in Christ Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you very much. God bless you. Have a wonderful and happy Thanksgiving. And we'll see you in two weeks.